Would you turn with me tonight to 2 Timothy chapter 3? That's where we're going to uh, kick things off. Second Timothy, chapter three. Go ahead and pray as well. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time uh, to gather together with our beloved brothers and sisters in the faith and uh, spend some time worshiping you, God. You are so worthy of our adoration and our love and Uh, God, we're just so blessed now to have this opportunity to hear from you as we consider the scriptures here tonight, God. So we ask that you would bless this time. We pray that you would encourage our hearts. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 16 and 17. This is a well-known Uh, passage of scripture. If you don't have a Bible, I think we're going to be able to uh, get that up on the screen for you as well. Paul writes this, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says here that all scripture, all of the documents God determined would make up the Bible are the inspired word of God. That is to say that although the books of the Bible were written by men, they were written by men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. And as a result, we believe that they are absolutely trustworthy in all that they teach. Now, of course, critics of the Bible disagree with Paul's assessment of scripture. Many critics of Christianity today think that the Bible is not a book given by inspiration of God, but rather an ancient collection of fabrications about God. Well, of course, we disagree with their conclusions and for good reason. Those of us who've taken the time to investigate some of the evidence for the Bible have discovered that there are a wealth of reasons to take the Bible seriously. If you were here two years ago, back in 2017, on a Thursday night, you may recall I did a whole presentation on uh, some of the scientific evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Well, this evening, I'd like to revisit the trustworthiness of the Bible, but this time I'd like to talk to you about the archeological evidence for the Bible. Many people who believe that the Bible is just an ancient compilation of folklore and legend don't realize that over the past 150 years, archaeologists have unearthed thousands of artifacts, inscriptions, and so on that have over and over again verified the exact 
truthfulness of the Bible's detailed records of various events, customs, persons, and geographical locations. So I want to talk to you about some of these discoveries tonight. Uh, My hope is that this will encourage and strengthen your faith, but that it also might help some of you uh, leave behind some of the doubts that you might still have regarding the trustworthiness of the Bible. We'll start by considering some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament, and then about halfway through the teaching, we'll switch gears and talk about some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the New Testament. But let's start with the ancient art of writing. The ancient art of writing, many critics of the Bible used to claim that the art of writing was completely unknown in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. These critics confidently assured people that the age of Moses was an age of illiteracy. Some scholars even asserted that writing was not even invented until 500 years after the time of Moses. And because that was supposedly the case, critics of the Bible said Moses surely could not have written the first five books of the Bible. And with that, they thought they blew up the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. Moses couldn't write, kaboom, there goes the Bible. And who are you to question us with the PhDs? Well, Jews and Christians did question their conclusions. And years later, great libraries of written tablets were discovered in the ruins at Ur in Iraq that demonstrated writing was around long before Moses and even long before the birth of Abraham. This particular tablet there on the screen was pulled up out of the ruins of Ur Abraham's hometown and dates back to about the very time of Abraham, about 2000 BC, 500 years before Moses. But thousands of these ancient texts have now been found. Here's another one dating back to about 1750 BC, again, long before the time of Moses. So the critics' allegations that writing didn't even exist at the time of Moses have now been left in a pile of ashes as many of their uh, criticisms of the Bible have been, as we'll continue to see here tonight. All right, moving along, let's consider one of the major events Moses wrote about, the Genesis Flood. The Genesis Flood. Of course, the Bible tells us that God judged humanity for their widespread wickedness with a cataclysmic flood that devastated the planet about about 2,500 years before Christ. If this event happened, as Moses said, and as both Jesus and Peter affirmed in the New Testament, surely there should be some evidence for it. And there is. Let me give you a quick overview of two lines of evidence for the flood. First, everywhere archaeologists and geologists dig on all seven continents, they find billions of dead creatures buried and fossilized inside sedimentary rock made up of sand, mud, and lime that were deposited rapidly by water. Water. 
billions of dead creatures encased inside sediment that was rapidly laid down by water all over the planet. That's odd. Animals that die natural deaths rapidly decompose and disappear. That's what happens to animals when they die. Their bodies fall to the ground and within just a few months, their bones are dragged off by scavengers or if left alone, they begin to decay under the wear and tear of the elements. But something radically different happened with the billions of creatures we find in the fossil record today. Their bones are preserved, many of them wholly intact with very little evidence of decay. Well, this has led many paleontologists, geologists, and archaeologists to conclude that these creatures were killed during a flood. Their bodies were caught in the mud flow, rapidly buried in the sediment while it was still wet and soft and then preserved. The fossils of billions of dead creatures encased inside sedimentary rock all over the planet are a powerful reminder of the flood described in the book of Genesis. But in addition to the widespread fossil evidence, archaeologists have also unearthed a number of ancient extra-biblical writings describing a catastrophic flood. Of course, after the flood, as Noah's descendants spread out to different parts of the ancient world, they took their memories of the flood with them and passed those memories down to their children, who would then pass their memories down to their children and on and on it went. And so really it should come as no surprise that the ancient Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Hindus, Chinese, Mexicans, Algonquins, and Hawaiians all have ancient accounts of a devastating flood. Although there are some differences between the accounts, the parallels between the accounts are pretty incredible and they've led many scholars to conclude that these different accounts all point back to a common event, the event we know as Noah's flood described for us in the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, a lot more could be said about evidence for the flood. For time's sake, I'll leave it at that and point you to our website if you'd like to learn more about it. The website is alwaysbeready.com. We've got an entire section of the website dedicated to evidence and research for the flood. All right, moving along. Let's talk for a couple of minutes about the ancient city of Jericho. The ancient city of Jericho... Jericho is about 10 miles north of the Dead Sea and five miles west of the Jordan River. Of course, it's well remembered as the city the Israelites marched around for seven days before God caused the walls of the city to fall down. You've read about that in Joshua chapter 6. Well, there was an exciting discovery made in the 1950s. Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, found the fallen walls of an ancient fortified city at Jericho. But there was a problem. Kenyon claimed that the ancient city of Jericho was destroyed around 1550 BC. Why was that a problem? Well, because a biblical chronology places the destruction of Jericho closer to 1400 BC, a century and a half 
later. Well, as you might imagine, critics of the Bible loved Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions. And so for about 30 or 40 years, they cited Kenyon's conclusion as proof that Joshua's conquest of Jericho, as recorded in the Bible, is pure legend. But Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions have fallen on hard times. In a story featured in Time magazine in 1990 called Score One for the Bible, (laughs) love the title, we read of how a newer examination by archaeologists of Canaanite pottery, some of the ancient Canaanite pottery pulled up out of the ruins of Jericho has demonstrated that Jericho was conquered around 1400 BC, the very time the Old Testament dates the crossing of the Hebrew people into the land of Canaan. Discoveries at Jericho that correspond perfectly with the biblical account include the following in the Time Magazine article mentions these, the collapsed walls of the city that you've read about in Joshua 6 verse 20. There's evidence that the walls collapsed at the time the city was destroyed, not later, for example, under age and decay. There's evidence that the city was massively destroyed by fire as indicated in Joshua 6, verse 24. And there's evidence that the destruction occurred at harvest time in the spring. Archaeologists came to that conclusion after finding large quantities of grain stored in the city. So all of these discoveries corresponded perfectly with what the Bible says. As the Time Magazine article mentioned, score one for the Bible indeed. And we're just still getting warmed up. Let's see what the score is in about 30 minutes. All right, moving along. Another discovery has to do with this man, David, the second king of Israel. And by way of reminder, these are not actual portraits uh, of the persons. Now, up until 1993, not a shred of evidence could be found anywhere outside of the Bible that David ever existed. So it had become quite fashionable within academic circles to dismiss the David stories as mere invention. The critics' verdict was that David was nothing more than a figure of religious and political mythology. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight in 1993 when this nearly 3,000-year-old inscription was discovered in the ruins of uh, the town of Dan, north of the Sea of Galilee in Israel, mentioning David, the king of Israel. This was an incredible discovery and helped to verify for the first time outside of the Bible that David was an actual historical figure. Time magazine rightly acknowledged in light of that discovery that the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Indeed it is. All right, uh, let's talk for a minute or two about this city, the ancient city of Nineveh. You've read about Nineveh if you've read the book of Jonah. The Old Testament tells us that God directed a Jewish prophet by the name of Jonah to go to a city 
called Nineveh. His message was of coming judgment for the Bible tells us the people of Nineveh were an exceedingly wicked people. Well, if you've read the book of Jonah, you know what happened. The people repented and God delayed his destruction of the city. Was Nineveh though perhaps just a legendary city? Just part of a big fish story? Well, some critics thought so because the city had been lost. It had been buried under centuries of Middle Eastern sandstorms and such. And so people were wondering whether this place was even a real place. Well, their questions came to an end when the British archaeologist Austin Layard finally found the ancient city of Nineveh. The city, once the capital of the ancient Assyrian empire has now been extensively excavated, remains of its walls, temples, palaces, library, moats, and defenses still survive on the eastern bank of the Tigris River opposite the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. One of the fascinating discoveries, and there were several, that they pulled up out of the ruins at Nineveh Nineveh was this six-sided clay prism known as the Shennacherib prism. It speaks of the Assyrian king Shennacherib's invasion of Judah, the one you've read about in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and Isaiah 36 and 37 during the reign of Hezekiah and that prism even corroborates many details in the biblical account. It's on display today at the British Museum in London. If you're ever in England uh, on any kind of uh, vacation or you know, maybe even just traveling through there, if you have a couple of hours to go to the British Museum, it'd be uh, incredible, I think, to... Uh, spend some time there. They've got several discoveries on display there that help validate different details in the Bible, but this is one of those. But speaking of King Hezekiah, let's talk for a minute or two about him and his life-saving tunnel. Hezekiah was one of Judah's better kings. He's written about in uh, the book of 2 Kings, the book of Isaiah and 2 Chronicles. But the Bible tells us that during his reign, Hezekiah ordered a tunnel to be built to secretly channel water from outside Jerusalem's main wall into Jerusalem where people could then safely collect water during an enemy's siege on the city. Well, in December of 2015, archaeologists announced that they had unearthed this ancient clay impression bearing the name of King Hezekiah. It was unearthed in the ruins just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The ancient Hebrew script there on the impression says, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This provides us with extra biblical confirmation that Hezekiah was a real person, even the son of King Ahaz, just as the Bible indicates. But long before this exciting discovery, the tunnel Hezekiah built in 2 Kings chapter 20 was discovered. Considered an engineering marvel, Hezekiah's tunnel winds through nearly 2,000 feet of limestone bedrock, about a third of a mile long underneath the city of Jerusalem. 
The tunnel was built by two teams of tunnelers who worked from opposite ends and then made an inscription in the wall in the middle of the tunnel when the two teams finally bumped into each other. But if you go to Israel on any kind of a guided tour, as I'd encourage you to try to do sometime, uh, you can walk through this tunnel uh, today. If you don't mind uh, the low ceiling and getting a little wet Uh, Water still flows through the tunnel, sometimes up to your waist. So uh, it's not for the faint at heart, uh, nor the claustrophobic. (laughs) Some people head into the tunnel, they think, oh, this is going to be fun. And then 20, 30 yards into the, they think, I hate this. But now you've got a bunch of people behind you, you're going through. You're not going to make everyone back out. How many of you have ever been through Hezekiah's tunnel? Any of you? Okay. Who else? Anyone? Okay, very good. I figure there's probably some of you who have been, been to Israel and gone through the tunnel. What a thrill, huh, to walk through the tunnel? This is the tunnel you've read about in 2 Kings chapter 20, built more than 700 years before Jesus was born. The tunnel's still there all this time later. Incredible. All right, moving along, let's talk for a minute or two about King Nebuchadnezzar and the ancient city of Babylon. We're told in the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his army came against the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was 605 BC. The Babylonian army besieged the city of Jerusalem. And then when the city fell, they took many of the Jews, including Daniel, captive back to the city of Babylon in modern day Iraq. Was Babylon a legendary city? Was Nebuchadnezzar a mythological person? Is the scripture's account of the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem a fabrication? Well, of course, the answer is no to all three of those questions. Today, 25 miles south of Baghdad, you can see the excavated ruins of Babylon. Archaeologists have unearthed the ruins of King Nebuchadnezzar's palaces, temples to his god Marduk, city walls, houses, pots, pans, all kinds of things belonging to the very time when Nebuchadnezzar ruled. These are buildings that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego would have been familiar with. And several of the nearly 15 million baked bricks used in the construction of Nebuchadnezzar's royal administrative buildings bear the inscription, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon. We even have surviving likenesses of Nebuchadnezzar. And by that, I mean, we know what he looked like based on archeological discoveries. This one on the screen being one of just a few examples. But in addition to these discoveries at Babylon, archaeologists also unearthed thousands of ancient Babylonian clay tablets that contain a treasure trove of information about Babylon's history. They are known to archaeologists as the Babylonian Chronicle tablets. And amazingly, these Babylonian records tell us of their siege against Jerusalem, the one you've read about. In 2 Kings chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 1. And that's not all. They also confirm the fact that the Babylonians took the Jewish people captive back to Babylon. Of course, all of this just goes to show that the authors of the Bible were telling us the truth about these matters. 
While we're on the topic of Babylon, let's talk for a minute or two about this man, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. I'll put the verses on the screen for you, but I think it'd be good for you to be familiar with this chapter uh, in your own Bible. This was one of the most assaulted chapters in all of the Bible by the critics, and we'll see why here momentarily. Daniel chapter 5. In verse 1, Daniel introduces to us a man by the name of Belshazzar. He was the reigning king Uh, in the Babylonian Empire at the time uh, Daniel penned this about him. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Belshazzar, the king, the king of Babylon, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, this was a massive party going on, and this was an interesting night for him to throw a party because the ancient Greek historian by the name of Herodotus tells us that the Persians were already encamped around the city of Babylon. They were intent on overthrowing him as the king and taking over the city. But apparently Belshazzar was confident enough that the 75 foot thick walls built around the city were going to be impregnable, that the city was well enough fortified. There was probably no real reason to fret. And so let's just have a party and maybe that'll help everybody calm down about what might happen. So while this massive party's going on and they're drinking and using the the Jewish utensils that had been brought over to them from Jerusalem. Something something happens that gets Belshazzar's attention. Belshazzar sees a human hand in verse 5 write a mysterious message on the wall that no one was able to interpret. So Daniel is called in to help interpret the message in verse 13. And the message was given that Belshazzar's kingdom was done in verse 26. God had had just about enough of this wicked man. Well, the Bible tells us that that very night, Belshazzar was killed and the city of Babylon passed into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. Herodotus, that Greek historian that I mentioned a moment ago, tells us how they overthrew the city. Uh, And apparently Belshazzar had not thought about this as a possibility. The Persians rerouted the uh, river that flowed into the city. Uh, that what's uh, the name of the river? The, uh, the Euphrates River flowed underneath the walls into the city of Babylon. Well, the soldiers outside, they diverted the river water and went right under the wall through the riverbed. And that's how they got into the city. And that night they took over the city and put Belshazzar to death, just as that mysterious message on the wall had said would happen. Well, this passage of scripture, Daniel chapter five, was long the target of the critics' canons. They considered Daniel's references to Belshazzar pure invention and a historical blunder. 
Why is that? Well, the name Belshazzar could not be found anywhere outside of the Bible. And the ancient historians Barossus and Alexander Polyhistor said that the last king of the Babylonian Empire was a man named not Belshazzar, but Nabonidus. Nabonidus. And so the critics appeared very wise pontificating about how the author of the book of Daniel not knowing the real name of the king and probably writing a long time after the fall of Babylon just made up the name Belshazzar. And the critics of the Bible appeared to have a case at least on this point until this inscription was found among the Babylonian chronicle tablets. This particular Babylonian tablet there on the screen tells us that when King Nabonidus left Babylon for a multi-year stay in the Arabian oasis town of Tima, about 450 miles away from Babylon, he entrusted the rule of Babylon into the hands of Belshazzar, his eldest son. What do you know? Belshazzar, the Bible was right. The critics had to take their damaged cannons and go home. (laughs) All right, now that's a concise sampling of some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament. Obviously, a lot more could be said about all of those discoveries. I do write about them in a more in-depth fashion in my book, Archaeological Evidence for the Bible, if you'd like to explore uh, those and other Old Testament discoveries. But let's switch gears now and talk about some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the New Testament. Starting by considering a man we know today as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. The Bible tells us that Herod was the king in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth and that he tried to have Jesus killed shortly after he was born. Might he have been a legendary figure? No. In addition to the fact that the first century historian Flavius Josephus wrote about him, a wealth of archaeological evidence has now confirmed his existence. Discoveries include this piece of a wine jug dating back to 19 BC that was uncovered at Masada, Herod's cliffside palace fortress overlooking the Dead Sea. I know that uh, your pastor and the team in Israel were just there a day or two ago. Uh, If you're following them on Instagram, I thought I'm going to be talking about that Thursday night. That was kind of fun to see, but The inscription on the wine jug that they found at Masada includes a reference to Herod and his full title, Herod, King of Judea. Other discoveries include coins with Herod's name on them, Herod's desert palace south of Jericho, and his hilltop palace south of Jerusalem known as the Herodium. And I saw that uh, your team that's in Israel got to walk around the ruins of that palace, that fortress, just a couple of days ago there in Israel. What, what an incredible thing to be able to do. But these discoveries all support the New Testament accounts and leave no doubt that Herod was a real historical figure and that he ruled in the very position described in the Gospels, King of Judea. 
All right, let's talk for a minute or two about this man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. The New Testament tells us that Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, cast John the Baptist into prison for condemning Antipas's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Sometime later, an executioner was called in and John, of course, was beheaded. You're familiar with that. Well, this too has been confirmed outside of the Bible. Flavius Josephus, that first century historian, writes about Herod Antipas. He writes about Herod's adulterous wife and the murder of John the Baptist in his book, Antiquities of the Jews. Let me pull a short excerpt from his writings up on the screen for you. Notice who he mentions here in the top line. He says, John, that was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God and so to come to baptism. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent John a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death, end quote. So notice that Josephus verifies for us that John the Baptist was a real person and that he was put to death by Herod Antipas, just like the New Testament tells us. Well, archaeologists have now identified the very palace where John was killed. Josephus said that the palace was named Machaerus. Well, archaeologists have unearthed it on top of this hill overlooking the Dead Sea there in the background. Excavations there are ongoing, but in the meantime, archaeologists have created this cutaway rendering of what the palace would have looked like in the first century. What an incredible find, the very place we believe John the Baptist spent his final days. Moving along, let's talk for a minute or two about this man, Caiaphas. The New Testament tells us that the name of the Jewish high priest at the time of Jesus was Caiaphas. He was the one who presided over that late night trial wherein Jesus confessed himself to be the Messiah, resulting, of course, in his condemnation. We're also told that it was in the courtyard of Caiaphas's home that Peter denied knowing who Jesus was. You've read about that in John chapter 18. Was Caiaphas a New Testament invention? No. In 1990, a team of construction workers building a water park approximately two miles south of Jerusalem accidentally unearthed a first century Jewish burial cave. Because of its enormous weight, a bulldozer unintentionally crashed through the roof of the cave. Well, archaeologists were called in. And inside the cave, they found several bone ossuaries, stone boxes used by the Jews in the first two centuries to collect the bones of their dead loved ones. But on one of the uncharacteristically ornate ossuaries, this one on the screen, was an inscription in Aramaic mentioning Caiaphas's full name, first and last, Joseph Caiaphas, the very name reported by Flavius 
Josephus. That ossuary is on display today in the museum in Jerusalem as testimony to the fact that Caiaphas was a real historical person, just like the New Testament authors said. Another amazing discovery has to do with Pontius Pilate. You're familiar with him. The New Testament authors tell us that Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Jesus, who oversaw Jesus's trial, and then of course had him sentenced to death uh, by crucifixion. Was he a legendary figure maybe? No. In June of 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists was digging in the city of Caesarea on the shore of the beautiful Mediterranean Sea there in Israel. While clearing away the sand and overgrowth from the jumbled ruins of this ancient Roman theater, these archaeologists made an amazing discovery. They found this limestone block about three feet tall with an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century mentioning Pontius Pilate, prefect or governor of Judea. So this inscription verified that Pontius Pilate was a real person, that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him by the gospels and that as prefect, he would have indeed had the authority to pardon or condemn Jesus just as the gospel accounts report. So there's good evidence for Herod, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, John the Baptist. What about this man, Jesus? Well, there's plenty of literary evidence, plenty of written evidence for Jesus's life. In addition to the 27 documents in the New Testament that record details about him, more than 30 extra biblical sources mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. I'm talking about sources like Roman historians, Cornelius Tacitus and Suetonius. Flavius Josephus mentions him. Uh, A collection of Jewish writings known as the Jewish Talmud, they mention him. Those are just a few of those sources that identify him as a real historical person. So the literary evidence is very strong, but what about stones or coins or inscriptions? Is there anything along those lines that mentions Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. On November 5th, 2005, Israeli archaeologists announced an amazing discovery. In the town of Megiddo in northern Israel, a prison inmate at a maximum security prison unearthed the remains of one of the oldest Christian churches ever discovered. You never know what a prisoner might find if you just give him a shovel. They had allowed, um, the prisoners wanted a basketball court out in the prison yard. And so they allowed them uh, to begin building that. And so the prisoners were out there digging around, trying to, you know, dig out where the foundation would go. And while digging there in the prison yard, a man by the name of Ramil Rosillo, one of the prisoners, discovered a 16 by 32 foot Greek style mosaic floor that bore an inscription mentioning that the building had been built in the memory of the God, Jesus Christ. This is the first uncontested archaeological discovery 
mentioning Jesus by name. And it was just discovered back in 2005. And not only does this recent discovery help reinforce the fact that Jesus existed, it also underscores what we have long known, and that is that the early Christians believed Jesus was God. I mention this because there are misinformed university professors today and people like the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God. That was something that was invented several centuries later. Well, we know that that is not the case um, based on biblical text and the writings of the early church fathers, but this archaeological discovery also uh, helps to solidify our case. We've got early Christian testimony. They, they had this church, this fellowship hall built in the memory, not of the good teacher, Jesus, or the prophet, Jesus, or the angel, Jesus, but we've built this building in the memory of the God, Jesus Christ. What an incredible discovery that was. All right, how about first century crucifixion? First century crucifixion. According to the Bible, Jesus' hands or wrists were nailed to the cross. You're familiar with that, of course. But at one time, critics said that crucifixions with nails never even took place in Israel in the first century. There's no evidence they happened and nails wouldn't hold up the weight of the bodies, they said. Well, the critics were shown to be wrong again when a crew of builders from the Israel Ministry of Housing working in Jerusalem accidentally discovered an ancient Jewish cemetery that contained the remains of several men who were killed during the Jewish revolt against Rome in approximately AD 70. One of the bone ossuaries that they pulled up out of the ground contained the skeleton of a young man and an inscription of the man's name. What stunned archaeologists most, though, was how this man died. He was put to death by crucifixion with nails. How was that determined? Well, he still had an iron spike driven through his heel bone. On the screen, you're seeing the actual heel bone with the original spike. It's on display today in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. You'll notice the head of the spike on the left and the bent tip on the right. Now, the Romans typically removed the nails from their victims for good reason. Iron was expensive, but apparently this nail was too difficult to remove. The tip of the nail had been bent back toward the head, likely the result of hitting a knot in the wood, and so the Roman soldiers just left it there. And now, 2,000 years later, we have solid archaeological evidence that the Romans did crucify people in Israel in the first century with nails, just like the Bible says they did. What a great find that was. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and talk lastly about persons and places mentioned by Luke. Persons and places mentioned by Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, Luke tells us of the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. In his detailed accounts, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine different islands. 
the names of different seaports and uh, the names and titles of priests and political leaders, very detailed. If, you, if you've read the book of Acts or the gospel of Luke, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Was Luke just making these kinds of things up? Some critics of the Bible once thought so. Hans Konzelman, the author of History of Primitive Christianity, a book I don't recommend, uh, declared the book of Acts to be a made-up story beginning to end. Critics like Konzelman believe that Luke had concocted his narrative, one author said, from the rambling of his imagination because he ascribed odd titles to authorities and mentioned governors that no one knew. One example of a supposed error can be found in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. There in Luke 3, verse 1, Luke tells us that John the Baptist's preaching ministry was taking place when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Well, for years, scholars pointed to this as evidence that Luke didn't know what he was talking about since everybody knew that Lysanias was not a tetrarch, but rather the ruler of a different city by the name of Chalcis, hundreds of miles away, half a century earlier. If Luke can't get that basic fact right, then nothing he has written can be trusted. And a host of Bible critics accused Luke of a gross chronological blunder, among other criticisms, when it came to this verse. Well, informed historians are not talking about Luke like that anymore. Why is that? Well, John McRae, a well-known veteran archaeologist describes what happened he said an inscription was later found from the time of Tiberius from AD 14 to 37 which names Lysanias as tetrarch in Abala near Damascus just as Luke had written it turned out there had been two government officials named Lysanias once more Luke was shown to be exactly right end quote So it turns out that it was the critics of the Bible who made the gross chronological blunder, not Luke. And this is just one example of where Luke has been proven to be right. To date, more than 80 details in the book of Acts alone have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Brothers and sisters, I tell you about these discoveries tonight because I want to assure you afresh, you can trust the Bible. You can read it with the highest degree of confidence. Jesus summarized the entirety of God's word with one word. When he was speaking to God the Father in prayer in John chapter 17, verse 17, he said, thy word is truth. This book tells us the truth about God. It tells us the truth on how we can be reconciled to him. It tells us the truth on how we can have our sins forgiven. It tells us the truth about how we can enjoy everlasting life on the other side of the grave. And for that, of course, we can be incredibly thankful. Do you know the loving, merciful God described for us in the Bible? You can. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, out of his great love for you, 
died on that cruel wooden Roman cross. Because of his love for you, the Bible says he died there in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. Why would he do that? Well, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with your creator. Of course, he rose from the grave three days later and today he offers all of mankind the forgiveness of sins, peace with God and the free gift of everlasting life. That is great news, friends. I don't know what you normally... Yeah, amen. I don't know what you normally think is a great gift, maybe come your birthday or Christmas, but this is way better. (laughs) Everlasting life? Forgiveness of all your sins? Peace with your maker? What a gracious offer God makes us. How do you lay hold of that gift? Well, Jesus simply said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. Jesus did all the hard work. All you need to do now, the Bible says, is believe, place your faith in him and what he accomplished for you. And you can do that tonight. God is a prayer away. You can call upon him right now and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me, come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So friend, don't put it off. If you need to get right with God, pray right now, wherever you're at. Maybe you're watching this online. Maybe you're here tonight. Don't walk out those doors without getting right with your maker and calling out to him. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, may you continue in the faith, picking up and reading the scriptures often, fully confident that they truly are the trustworthy words of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time we've been able to uh, consider your word. We know it's under assault today from a variety of different directions, but Lord, we're also thankful that you've given us so many intellectually satisfying reasons to take this book seriously. Hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries. God, what? Whoa. there's really no reason to doubt the Bible. So Lord, we're thankful for that reminder here tonight. We do pray that you'd give us a renewed hunger and thirst to read it and to study it and to live according to what it says. And God, we do pray for anyone here tonight or anyone watching perhaps on the live broadcast that tonight, Lord, that they would call upon the name of Jesus and experience the forgiveness of their sins. Work in their hearts to that end, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you tonight.